I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Eli Reads. This is Chapter 8 of Salambo, a novel of blood and sand and elephants and weasel tea by Gustave Flaubert. Now, Chapter 8 is where we get some hardcore battle action. The Carthaginian army, led by Hamilcar Barca, will be clashing with the mercenaries. Now, I'm not going to lie, the action gets confusing. But I believe this is a deliberate technique from Flaubert, similar to his use of weird, archaic terminology. Uh, this is both a complex battle and a nonsensical one. What one side holds to be true turns out not to be. Your grasp of the situation is tenuous. Like so many other descriptive passages in this book, I suggest not trying too hard to discern the exact outline. Just let it wash over you and allow meaning to float up to you in its own way. Chapter 8. The Battle of the Makaras. In the following day, he drew 223,000 kikars of gold from the Sicitia and decreed a tax of 14 shekels upon the rich. Even the women contributed. Payment was made in behalf of the children and he compelled the colleges of priests to furnish money. A monstrous thing, according to Carthaginian customs. He demanded all the horses, mules, and arms. A few tried to conceal their wealth, and their property was sold. And to intimidate the avarice of the rest, he himself gave sixty suits of armor and fifteen hundred gomers of meal, which was as much as was given by the ivory company. He sent into Liguria to buy soldiers, 3,000 mountaineers accustomed to fight with bears. They were paid for six moons in advance at the rate of four minae a day. Nevertheless, an army was wanted, but he did not, like Hanno, accept all the citizens. First, he rejected those engaged in sedentary occupations, and then those who were big-bellied or had a pusillanimous look. And he admitted those of ill repute, the scum of Malqua, sons of barbarians, freed men. For reward, he promised some of the new Carthaginians complete rights of citizenship. His first care was to reform the legion. These handsome young fellows, who regarded themselves as the military majesty of the Republic, governed themselves. He reduced their officers to the ranks. 
He treated them harshly, made them run, leap, ascend the declivity of Birsa at a single burst, hurl javelins, wrestle together, and sleep in the squares at night. Their families used to come see them and pity them. He ordered shorter swords and stronger buskins. He fixed the number of serving men and reduced the amount of baggage. And as there were three hundred Roman pila kept in the temple of Moloch, he took them in spite of the pontiff's protests. He organized a phalanx of seventy-two elephants, with those which had returned from Utica and others which were private property, and rendered them formidable. He armed their drivers with mallet and chisel to enable them to split their skulls in the fight if they ran away. He would not allow his generals to be nominated by the Grand Council. The ancients tried to urge the laws in objection, but he set them aside. No one ventured to murmur again, and everything yielded to the violence of his genius. He assumed sole charge of the war, the government, and the finances, and as a precaution against accusations, he demanded the Sufit Hanno as examiner of his accounts. He set to work upon the ramparts, and had the old and now useless inner walls demolished in order to furnish stones. But difference of fortune, replacing the hierarchy of race, still kept the sons of the vanquished and those of the conquerors apart. Thus the patricians viewed the destruction of these ruins with an angry eye, while the plebeians, scarcely knowing why, rejoiced. The troops defiled under arms through the streets from morning till night. Every moment the sound of trumpets was heard, chariots passed bearing shields, tents, and pikes. The courts were full of women engaged in tearing up linen. The enthusiasm spread from one to another, and Hamilcar's soul filled the republic. He had divided his soldiers into even numbers, being careful to place a strong man and a weak one alternately throughout the length of his files so that he who was less vigorous or more cowardly might be at once led and pushed forward by two others. But with his three thousand Ligurians and the best in Carthage, he could form only a simple phalanx of four thousand and ninety-six hoplites, protected by bronze helmets, and handling ashen cerise fourteen cubits long. There were two thousand young men, each equipped with a sling, a dagger, and sandals. He reinforced them with eight hundred others, armed with round shields and Roman swords. The heavy cavalry was composed of the 1,900 remaining guardsmen of the legion, covered with plates of vermilion bronze, like the Assyrian clinabarians. He had further 400 mounted archers, of those that were called tarantines, with caps of weasel's skin, two-edged axes, and leathern tunics. Finally, there were 1,200 negroes from the quarter of the caravans, who were mingled with the Clinabarians and were to run beside the stallions with one hand resting on the manes. All was ready, and yet Hamilcar did not start. Often at night he would go out of Carthage alone and make his way beyond the lagoon towards the mouths of the Macaras. Did he intend to join the mercenaries? The Ligurians encamped in the Mapalian district surrounded his house. The apprehensions of the rich appeared justified when, one day, three hundred barbarians were seen approaching the walls. The Sufit opened the gates to them. They were deserters, drawn by fear or by fidelity. They were hastening to their master. Hamilcar's return had not surprised the mercenaries. According to their ideas, the man could not die. He was returning to fulfill his promise, a hope by no means absurd, so deep was the abyss between country and army. 
Moreover, they did not believe themselves culpable. The feast was forgotten. The spies whom they surprised undeceived them. It was a triumph for the bitter. Even the lukewarm grew furious. Then the two sieges overwhelmed them with weariness. No progress was being made. A battle would be better. Thus, many men had left the ranks and were scouring the country. But at news of the arming, they returned. Matho leaped for joy. At last, at last, he cried. Then the resentment which he cherished against Salambo was turned against Hamilcar. His hate could now perceive a definite prey, and as his vengeance grew easier of conception, he almost believed that he had realized it, and he reveled in it already. At the same time, he was seized with a loftier tenderness and consumed by more acrid desire. He saw himself alternately in the midst of the soldiers brandishing the Sufit's head on a pike, and then in the room with the purple bed, clasping the maiden in his arms, covering her face with kisses, passing his hands over her long black hair. And the imagination of this, which he knew could never be realized, tortured him. He swore to himself that, since his companions had appointed him, Shalashim, he would conduct the war. The certainty that he would not return from it urged him to render it a pitiless one. He came to Spendius and said to him, You will go up and get your men. I will bring mine. Warn Autoritus. We are lost if Hamilcar attacks us. Do you understand me? Rise. Spendius was stupefied before such an air of authority. Matho usually allowed himself to be led, and his previous transports had quickly passed away, but just now he appeared at once calmer and more terrible. A superb will gleamed in his eyes, like the flame of sacrifice. The Greek did not listen to his reasons. He was living in one of the Carthaginian pearl-bordered tents, drinking cool beverages from silver cups, playing at the catabos, letting his hair grow, and conducting the siege with slackness. Moreover, he had entered into communications with some in the town and would not leave, being sure that it would open its gates before many days were over. Narhavas, who wandered about among the three armies, was at that time with him. He supported his opinion, and even blamed the Libyan for wishing in his excess of courage to abandon their enterprise. "'Go if you are afraid,' exclaimed Matho. "'You promised us pitch, sulfur, elephants, foot soldiers, horses. Where are they?' Narhavas reminded him that he had exterminated Hanno's last cohorts. As to the elephants, they were being hunted in the woods." He was arming the foot soldiers, the horses were on their way, and the Numidian rolled his eyes like a woman and smiled in an irritating manner as he stroked the ostrich feather which fell upon his shoulder. In his presence, Matho was at a loss for a reply. But a man who was a stranger entered, wet with perspiration, scared, and with bleeding feet and loosened girdle. His breathing shook his lean sides enough to have burst them, and speaking in an unintelligible dialect, he opened his eyes wide as if he were telling of some battle. The king sprang outside and called his horsemen. They ranged themselves in the plain before him in the form of a circle. Norhavas, who was mounted, bent his head and bit his lips. At last he separated his men into two equal divisions and told the first to wait, and then with an imperious gesture he carried off the others at a gallop disappeared on the horizon in the direction of the mountains. 
Master, murmured Spendius, I do not like these extraordinary chances. The Sufit returning? Narhavas going away? Why, what does it matter? said Matho, disdainfully. It was a reason the more for anticipating Hamilcar by uniting with Autoritus. But if the siege of the towns were raised, the inhabitants would come out and attack them in the rear, while they would have the Carthaginians in front. After much talking, the following measures were resolved upon and immediately executed. Spendius proceeded with 15,000 men as far as the bridge built across the Macaras, three miles from Utica. The corners of it were fortified with four huge towers provided with catapults. All the paths and gorges in the mountains were stopped up with trunks of trees, pieces of rock, interlacings of thorn and stone walls. On the summits, heaps of grass were made, which might be lighted as signals, and shepherds who were able to see at a distance were posted at intervals. No doubt Hamilcar would not, like Hanno, advance by the mountains of the hot springs. He would think that Autoritus, being master of the interior, would close the route against him. Moreover, a check at the opening of the campaign would ruin him, while if he gained a victory, he would soon have to make a fresh beginning, the mercenaries being further off. Again, he could disembark at Cape Grapes and march then upon one of the towns, but he would then find himself between the two armies, an indiscretion which he could not commit with his scanty forces. Accordingly, he must proceed along the base of Mount Ariana, then turn to the left to avoid the mouths of the Macaras, and come straight to the bridge. It was there that Matho expected him. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. At night, he used to inspect the pioneers by torchlight. He would hasten to Hippo's Aritus or to the works on the mountains, would come back again, would never rest. Spendius envied his energy, but in the management of spies, the choice of sentries, the working of the engines, and all means of defense, Matho listened docilely to his companion. They spoke no more of Salambo, one not thinking about her, and the other being prevented by a feeling of shame. Often he would go towards Carthage, striving to catch sight of Hamilcar's troops. His eyes would dart along the horizon. He would lie flat on the ground and believe that he could hear an army in the throbbing of his arteries. 
He told Spendius that if Hamilcar did not arrive in three days, he would go with all his men to meet him and offer him battle. Two further days elapsed. Spendius restrained him, but on the morning of the sixth day, he departed. The Carthaginians were no less impatient for war than the barbarians. In tents and in houses, there was the same longing and the same distress. All were asking one another, what was delaying Hamilcar? From time to time, he would mount to the cupola of the Temple of Eshmoon, beside the announcer of the moons, and take note of the wind. One day, it was the third of the month of Tibi, they saw him descending from the Acropolis with hurried steps. A great clamor arose in the Mapalian district. Soon the streets were astir, and the soldiers were everywhere, beginning to arm themselves upon their breasts. Then they ran quickly to the square of Camon to take their places in the ranks. No one was allowed to follow them or even to speak to them or to approach the ramparts. For some minutes the whole town was as silent as a great tomb. The soldiers, as they leaned on their lances, were thinking, and the others in the houses were sighing. At sunset, the army went out by the western gate. But instead of taking the road to Tunis or making for the mountains in the direction of Utica, they continued their march along the edge of the sea, and they soon reached the lagoon, where round spaces, quite whitened with salt, glittered like gigantic silver dishes forgotten on the shore. And then the pools of the water multiplied. The ground gradually became softer, and the feet sank in it. Hamilcar did not turn back. He went on, still at their head, and his horse, which was yellow-spotted like a dragon, advanced into the mire, flinging froth around with him and with great straining of the loins. Night, a moonless light, fell. A few cried out that they were about to perish. He snatched their arms from them and gave them to the serving men. Nevertheless, the mud became deeper and deeper. Some had to mount their beasts of burden. Others clung to the horses' tails. The sturdy pulled the weak, and the Ligurian corps drove on the infantry with the points of their spikes. The darkness increased. They had lost their way. All stopped. Then some of the Sufit slaves went on ahead to look for the buoys which had been placed at intervals by his order. They shouted through the darkness, and the army followed them at a distance. At last they felt the resistance of the ground. Then a whitish curve became dimly visible, and they found themselves on the bank of the Makaras. In spite of the cold, no fires were lighted. In the middle of the night, squalls of wind arose. Hamilcar had the soldiers roused, but not a trumpet was sounded. Their captain tapped them softly on the shoulder. A man of lofty stature went down into the water, it did not come up to his girdle. It was possible to cross. The Sufit ordered thirty-two of the elephants to be posted in the river a hundred paces further on, while the others, lower down, would check the lines of men that were carried away by the current, and holding their weapons above their heads, they all crossed the Makaras as though between two walls. He had noticed that the western wind had driven the sand so as to obstruct the river and form a natural causeway across it. He was now on the left bank, in front of Utica, and in a vast plain, the latter being advantageous for his elephants, which formed the strength of his army. This feat of genius filled the soldiers with enthusiasm. They recovered extraordinary confidence. They wished to hasten immediately against the barbarians, but the Sufit bade them rest for two hours, 
As soon as the sun appeared, they moved into the plain in three lines. First came the elephants, then the light infantry, with the cavalry behind it, the phalanx marching next. The barbarians, encamped at Utica, and the 15,000 about the bridge were surprised to see the ground undulating in the distance. The wind, which was blowing very hard, was driving tornadoes of sand before it. They rose as though snatched from the soil, ascended in great light-colored strips, then parted asunder and began again, hiding the Punic army the while from the mercenaries. Owing to the horns which stood up on the edge of the helmet, some thought that they could perceive a herd of oxen. Others, deceived by the motion of the cloaks, pretended that they could distinguish wings. And those who had traveled a good deal shrugged their shoulders and explained everything by the illusions of the mirage. Nevertheless, something of enormous size continued to advance. Little vapors, as subtle as the breath, ran across the surface of the desert. The sun, which was higher now, shone more strongly. A harsh light, which seemed to vibrate, threw back the depths of the sky, and permeating objects rendered distance incalculable. The immense plain expanded in every direction, beyond the limits of vision, and the almost insensible undulations of the soil extended to the extreme horizon, which was closed by a great blue line, which they knew to be the sea. The two armies, having left their tents, stood gazing. The people of Utica were massing on the ramparts to have a better view. At last they distinguished several transverse bars bristling with level points. They became thicker, larger. Black hillocks swayed to and fro. Square thickets suddenly appeared. They were elephants and lances. A single shout went up. The Carthaginians! And without signal or command, the soldiers at Utica and those at the bridge ran pell-mell to fall in a body upon Hamilcar. Spendius shuddered at the name. Hamilcar, Hamilcar, he repeated, panting. And Matho was not there. What was to be done? No means of flight. The suddenness of the event, his terror of the Sufit, and above all, the urgent need of forming an immediate resolution distracted him. He could see himself pierced by a thousand swords, decapitated, dead. Meanwhile, he was being called for. Thirty thousand men would follow him. He was seized with fury against himself. He fell back upon the hope of victory. It was full of bliss, and he believed himself more intrepid than Epaminondas. He smeared his cheeks with vermilion in order to conceal his paleness. Then he buckled on his canemids and his cuirass, swallowed a patera of pure wine, and ran after his troops, who were hastening towards those from Utica. They united so rapidly that the Sufit had not time to draw up his men in battle array. By degrees he slackened his speed. The elephants stopped. They rocked their heavy heads with their chargings of ostrich feathers striking their shoulders the while with their trunks. Behind the intervals, between them might be seen the cohorts of the Velites, and further on the great helmets of the Clinabarians with steel heads glancing in the sun, cuirasses, plumes, and waving standards. But the Carthaginian army, which amounted to 11,396 men, seemed scarcely to contain them, for it formed an oblong, narrow at the sides and pressed back upon itself. Seeing them so weak... The barbarians, who were thrice as numerous, were seized with extravagant joy. Hamilcar was not to be seen, 
Perhaps he had remained down yonder? Moreover, what did it matter? The disdain which they felt for these traders strengthened their courage. And before Spendius could command a maneuver, they had all understood it and already executed it. They were deployed in a long, straight line, overlapping the wings of the Punic army in order to completely encompass it. But when there was an interval of only 300 paces between the armies, the elephants turned round instead of advancing. Then the Clinabarians were seen to face about and follow them, and the surprise of the mercenaries increased when they saw the archers running to join them. So the Carthaginians were afraid. They were fleeing. A tremendous hooting broke out from among the barbarian troops, and Spendius exclaimed from the top of his dromedary, I knew it! Forward! Forward! Then javelins, darts, and sling bullets burst forth simultaneously. The elephants, feeling their croups stung by the arrows, began to gallop more quickly. A great dust enveloped them, and they vanished like shadows in a cloud. But from the distance, there came a loud noise of footsteps, dominated by the shrill sound of the trumpets, which were being blown furiously. The space which the barbarians had in front of them, which was full of eddies and tumult, attracted like a whirlpool. Some dashed into it. Cohorts of infantry appeared. They closed up, and at the same time all the rest saw the foot soldiers hastening up with the horsemen at a gallop. Hamilcar had, in fact, ordered the phalanx to break its sections, and the elephants, light troops, and cavalry to pass through the intervals so as to bring themselves speedily upon the wings. And so well had he calculated the distance from the barbarians that at the moment when they reached him, the entire Carthaginian army formed one long, straight line. In the center bristled the phalanx, formed of syntagmata, or full squares having sixteen men on each side. All the leaders of all the files appeared amid long, sharp lance-heads, which jutted out unevenly around them. For the first six ranks crossed their sarasse, holding them in the middle, and the ten lower ranks rested them upon the shoulders of their companions in succession before them. Their faces were all half-hidden beneath the visors of their helmets. Their right legs were all covered with bronze knemids. Broad cylindrical shields reached down to their knees, and the horrible quadrangular mass moved in a single body and seemed to live like an animal and work like a machine. Two cohorts of elephants flanked it in regular array. Quivering, they shook off the splinters of the arrows that clung to their black skins. The Indians, squatting on their withers among the tufts of white feathers, restrained them with their spoon-headed harpoons, while the men in the towers, who were hidden up to their shoulders, moved about iron distaffs furnished with lighted tow on the edges of their large, bended bows. Right and left of the elephants hovered the slingers, each with a sling around his loins, a second on his head, and a third in his right hand. Then came the clinabarians, each flanked by a negro, and pointing their lances between the ears of their horses, which, like themselves, were completely covered with gold. Afterwards, at intervals, came the light-armed soldiers with shields of lynx skin, beyond which projected the points of the javelins, which they held in their left hands, while the Tarentines, each having two coupled horses, relieved this wall of soldiers at its two extremities. The army of the barbarians, on the contrary, had not been able to preserve its line. Undulations and blanks were to be found through its extravagant length. 
all were panting and out of breath with their running. The phalanx moved heavily along with thrusts from all its sarasay, and the too slender line of the mercenaries soon yielded in the center beneath the enormous weight. Then the Carthaginian wings expanded in order to fall upon them, the elephants following. The phalanx with obliquely pointed lances cut through the barbarians. There were two enormous struggling bodies, and the wings with slings and arrows beat them back upon the phalangites. There was no cavalry to get rid of them, except 200 Numidians operating against the right squadron of the Clinabarians. All the rest were hemmed in and unable to extricate themselves from the lines. The peril was imminent, and the need of coming to some resolution urgent. Spendius ordered attacks to be made simultaneously on both flanks of the phalanx so as to pass clean through it. But the narrower ranks glided below the longer ones and recovered their positions, and the phalanx turned upon the barbarians as terrible in flank as it had just been in front. They struck at the staves of the Saracay, but the cavalry in the rear embarrassed their attack, and the phalanx, supported by the elephants, lengthened and contracted, presenting itself in the form of a square, a cone, a rhombus, a trapezium, a pyramid. A twofold internal movement went on continually from its head to its rear. For those who were at the lowest part of the files hastened up to the first ranks, while the latter, from fatigue or on account of the wounded, fell further back. The barbarians found themselves thronged upon the phalanx. It was impossible for it to advance. There was, as it were, an ocean, wherein leaped red crests and scales of brass, while the bright shields rolled like silver foam. Sometimes broad currents would descend from one extremity to the other and then go up again while a heavy mass remained motionless in the center. The lances dipped and rose alternately. Elsewhere there was so quick a play of naked swords that only the points were visible, while terme of cavalry formed wide circles, which closed again like whirlwinds behind them. Above the voices of the captains, the ringing of clarions and the grating of tires, bullets of lead and almonds of clay whistled through the air, dashing the sword from the hand or the brain out of the skull. The wounded, sheltering themselves with one arm beneath their shields, pointed their swords by resting the pommels on the ground, while others, lying in pools of blood, would turn and bite the heels of those above them. The multitude was so compact, the dust so thick, and the tumult so great, that it was impossible to distinguish anything. The cowards who offered to surrender were not even heard. Those whose hands were empty clasped one another close, breasts cracked against cuirasses, and corpses hung with head thrown back between a pair of contracted arms. There was a company of sixty Umbrians who, firm on their hams, their pikes before their eyes, immovable and grinding their teeth, forced two syntagmata to recoil simultaneously. Some epirote shepherds ran upon the left squadron of the Clinabarians and, whirling their staves, seized the horses by the man. The animals threw their riders and fled across the plain. The Punic slingers, scattered here and there, stood gaping. The phalanx began to waver. The captains ran to and fro in distraction. The rearmost in the files were pressing upon the soldiers. And the barbarians had reformed. They were recovering. The victory was theirs. But a cry, a terrible cry, broke forth, a roar of pain and wrath. It came from the seventy-two elephants, which were rushing on in a double line, Hamilcar having waited until the mercenaries 
were massed together in one spot to let them loose against them. The Indians had goaded them so vigorously that blood was trickling down their broad ears. Their trunks, which were smeared with minium, were stretched straight out in the air like red serpents. Their breasts were furnished with spears and their backs with cuirasses. Their tusks were lengthened with steel blades curved like sabers. And to make them more ferocious, they had been intoxicated with a mixture of pepper, wine, and incense. They shook their necklaces of bells and shrieked, and the elephantarchs bent their heads beneath the stream of phalaricas, which was beginning to fly from the tops of the towers. In order to resist them the better, the barbarians rushed forward in a compact crowd. The elephants flung themselves impetuously upon the center of it. The spurs on their breasts, like ships' prows, clove through the cohorts, which flowed surging back. They stifled the men with their trunks, or else, snatching them up from the ground, delivered them over their heads to the soldiers in the towers. With their tusks, they disemboweled them and hurled them into the air, and long entrails hung from their ivory fangs like bundles of rope from a mast. The barbarians strove to blind them, to hamstring them. Others would slip beneath their bodies, bury a sword in them up to the hilt, and perish crushed to death. The most intrepid clung to their straps, They would go on sawing the leather amid flames, bullets, and arrows, and the wicker tower would fall like a tower of stone. Fourteen of the animals on the extreme right, irritated by their wounds, turned upon the second rank. The Indians seized mallet and chisel, applied the latter to a joint in the head, and with all their might struck a great blow. Down fell the huge beasts, falling one above another. It was like a mountain and upon the heap of dead bodies and armor a monstrous elephant called the Fury of Baal, which had been caught by the leg in some chains, stood howling until the evening with an arrow in its eye. The others, however, like conquerors, delighting in extermination, overthrew, crushed, stamped, and raged against the corpses in the debris. To repel the maniples in serried circles around them, they turned about on their hind feet as they advanced, and with a continual rotary motion, The Carthaginians felt their energy increase, and the battle began again. The barbarians were growing weak. Some Greek hoplites threw away all their arms, and terror seized upon the rest. Spendius was seen stooping upon his dromedary and spurring it on the shoulders with two javelins. Then they all rushed away from the wings and ran towards Utica. The Clinabarians, whose horses were exhausted, did not try to overtake them. The Ligurians, who were weakened by thirst, cried out for an advance towards the river. But the Carthaginians, who were posted in the center of the Syntagmata and had suffered less, stamped their feet with longing for the vengeance which was flying from them, and they were already darting forward in pursuit of the mercenaries when Hamilcar appeared. He held in his spotted and sweat-covered horse with silver reins. The bands fastened to the horns on his helmet flapped in the wind behind him, and he had placed his oval shield beneath his left thigh, With a motion of his triple-pointed spike, he checked the army. The Tarentines leaped quickly upon their spare horses and set off right and left towards the river and towards the town. The phalanx exterminated all the remaining barbarians at leisure. When the swords appeared, they would stretch out their throats and close their eyelids. Others defended themselves to the last and were knocked down from a distance with flints like mad dogs. Hamilcar had desired the taking of prisoners, but the Carthaginians obeyed him grudgingly. So much pleasure did they derive from plunging their swords into the bodies of the barbarians. 
As they were too hot, they set about their work with bare arms, like mowers. And when they desisted to take breath, they would follow with their eyes a horseman galloping across the country after a fleeing soldier. He would succeed in seizing him by the hair, hold him thus for a while, and then fell him with a blow of his axe. Night fell. Carthaginians and barbarians had disappeared. The elephants, which had taken to flight, roamed in the horizon with their fired towers. These burned here and there in the darkness, like beacons nearly half lost in the mist, and no movement could be discerned in the plain save the undulation of the river, which was heaped with corpses, and was drifting them away to the sea. Two hours afterwards, Matho arrived. He caught sight in the starlight of long, uneven heaps lying upon the ground. They were files of barbarians. He stooped down. All were dead. He called into the distance, but no voice replied. That very morning, he had left Hippo Zaritis with his soldiers to march upon Carthage. At Utica, the army under Spendius had just set out, and the inhabitants were beginning to fire the engines. All had fought desperately, but the tumult which was going on in the direction of the bridge, increasing in an incomprehensible fashion, Matho had struck across the mountain by the shortest road, and as the barbarians were fleeing over the plain, he had encountered nobody. Facing him were little pyramidal masses rearing themselves in the shade, and on this side of the river and closer to him were motionless lights on the surface of the ground. In fact, the Carthaginians had fallen back behind the bridge, and to deceive the barbarians, the Sufit had stationed numerous posts upon the other bank. Matho, still advancing, thought that he could distinguish Punic engines, for horses' heads which did not stir appeared in the air, fixed upon the tops of piles of staves, which could not be seen. And further off he could hear a great clamor, a noise of songs and clashing of cups. Then, not knowing where he was, nor how to find Spendius, assailed with anguish, scared, and lost in the darkness, he returned, more impetuously, by the same road. The dawn was growing gray, when from the top of the mountain he perceived the town, with the carcasses of the engines blackened by the flames and looking like giant skeletons leaning against the walls. All was peaceful, amid extraordinary silence and heaviness. Among his soldiers on the verge of the tents, men were sleeping nearly naked, each upon his back or with his forehead against his arm, which was supported by his cuirass. Some were unwinding blood-stained bandages from their legs. Those who were doomed to die rolled their heads about gently. Others dragged themselves along and brought them drink. The sentries walked up and down along the narrow paths in order to warm themselves, or stood in a fierce attitude with their faces turned towards the horizon, 
and their pikes on their shoulders. Matho found Spendius sheltered beneath a rag of canvas, supported by two sticks set in the ground, his knee in his hands and his head cast down. They remained for a long time without speaking. At last, Matho murmured, Conquered. Spendius rejoined in a gloomy voice, Yes, conquered. And to all questions he replied by gestures of despair. Meanwhile, sighs and death rattles reached them. Matho partially opened the canvas, and then the sights of the soldiers reminded him of another disaster on the same spot, and he ground his teeth. Wretch! Once already! Spendius interrupted him. You were not there, either! It is a curse, exclaimed Matho. Nevertheless, in the end, I will get at him. I will conquer him. I will slay him. Ah, if I had been there! The thought of having missed the battle rendered him even more desperate than the defeat. He snatched up his sword and threw it upon the ground. But how did the Carthaginians beat you? The former slave began to describe the maneuvers. Matho seemed to see them, and he grew angry. The army from Utica ought to have taken Hamilcar in the rear, instead of hastening from the bridge. I know, said Spendius. You ought to have made your ranks twice as deep, avoided exposing the velites against the phalanx and given free passage to the elephants. Everything might have been recovered at the last moment. There was no necessity to fly. Spendius replied, I saw him pass along in his large red cloak with uplifted arms and higher than the dust, like an eagle flying upon the flank of the cohorts, and at every nod they closed up or darted forward. The throng carried us towards each other. He looked at me and I felt a cold steel as if it were in my heart. He selected the day, perhaps, whispered Matho to himself. They questioned each other, trying to discover what it was that had brought the Sufit just when circumstances were most unfavorable. They went on to talk over the situation, and Spendius, to extenuate his fault or to revive his courage, asserted that some hope still remained. And if there be none, it matters not, said Matho. Alone, I will carry on the war. And I too, exclaimed the Greek, leaping up, and he strode to and fro, his eyes sparkling, and a strange smile wrinkled his jackal face. We will make a fresh start, and do not leave me again. I am not made for battles in the sunlight. The flashing of swords troubles my sight. It is a disease. I live too long in the ergastulum. But give me walls to scale at night, and I will enter the citadels, and the corpses shall be cold before cockcrow. Show me anyone, anything, an enemy, a treasure, a woman, a woman, he repeated. Were she a king's daughter, and I will quickly bring your desire to your feet. You reproach me for having lost the battle against Hanno. Nevertheless, I won it back again. Confess it, my herd of swine did more for us than a phalanx of Spartans. And yielding to the need that he felt of exalting himself and taking his revenge, he enumerated all that he had done for the cause of the mercenaries. It was I who urged on the Gaul in the Sufit's gardens, and later, at Sicca, I maddened them all with fear of the Republic. Gisco was sending them back, but I prevented the interpreter speaking. Ah, how their tongues hung out of their mouths. Do you remember? I brought you into Carthage. I stole the Zamph. I led you to her. I will do more yet. <laughs> you shall see. He burst out laughing like a madman. Matho regarded him with gaping eyes. He felt in a measure uncomfortable in the presence of this man, 
who was at once so cowardly and so terrible. The Greek resumed in jovial tones and cracking his fingers. Evo, son after run, I have worked in the quarries and I have drunk massic wine beneath a golden awning in a vessel of my own like a Ptolemaeus. Calamity should help to make us cleverer. By dint of work, we may make fortune bend. She loves politicians. She will yield. He returned to Matho and took him by the arm. Master, at present the Carthaginians are sure of their victory. You have quite an army, which has not fought, and your men obey you. Place them in the front. Mine will follow to avenge themselves. I have still three thousand carrions, twelve hundred slingers and archers, whole cohorts. A phalanx even might be formed. Let us return. Matho, who had been stunned by the disaster, had hitherto thought of no means of repairing it. He listened with open mouth, and the bronze plates which circled his sides rose with the leapings of his heart. He picked up his sword, crying, Follow me, forward! But when the scouts returned, they announced that the Carthaginian dead had been carried off, that the bridge was in ruins, and that Hamilcar had disappeared. That was chapter 8 of Eli Reed's Salambo. Thank you so much for making it all this way to the end. If you liked it, leave a review, rate it, etc., etc., etc. I'll see you right back here for chapter 9. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.